Welcome to The Big Rich Show. This podcast will focus on conversations with friends and acquaintances within the four-wheel drive industry. Many of the people that I will be interviewing, you may know the name, you may know some of the history, but let's get in depth with these people and find out what truly makes them a four-wheel drive enthusiast. So now's the time to sit back, grab a cold one, and enjoy our conversation. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two, Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Dread victoriously. Why should you read Four Low Magazine? Because Four Low Magazine is about your lifestyle, the four-wheel drive adventure lifestyle that we all enjoy. Rock crawling, trail riding, event coverage, vehicle builds, and do-it-yourself tech all in a beautifully presented package. You won't find Four Low on the newsstand rack, so subscribe today and have it delivered to you. On today's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, we have one of the OG rock crawlers, Rob Bonney. He's an Arizona rock crawler, and we want to hear his side of the history of rock crawling from the beginning. All right, Rob Bonney, long time no see. It's uh, so great to have you on with us and talk about the history of rock crawling from your perspective and how you got started. So tell us, uh, let's start off with where, where did you grow up? Where did I grow up? I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, born and raised. And uh, this, this is why I chose this as my background. The uh, FJ40 behind me, my parents bought in 1977, the year I was born. So that's how I got started, riding around in the back of that thing. I used to hang from the roll bar like a monkey, you know, and trail rides. And my, my dad was the kind of guy that liked to destroy things. So we'd buy something new, and then he'd take it out, usually the first weekend, and rip the bumper off or get it stuck or, you know, that's, that's where we came from, just doing stuff like that, see the outdoors. Awesome. It's great to see that you have the vehicle that you grew up riding in. That's so many people don't have that opportunity and, and start looking for their old rides. I, I got started about the same time. It was 81, 82, uh-huh. but it was through a father-in-law that, that took me wheeling on the Rubicon or in the area of the Rubicon first. So the year you were born, I was already graduated from high school. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little age difference, but that's okay. Um, you're still an OG. So, okay, if you got started that early, that means you've been wheeling all your life. Pretty much all my life. In the, in the Arizona area. How, uh, what was your first vehicle? Uh, my first vehicle, and I still have it, it's a 1952 M37 a Dodge military truck, which I bought for 400 bucks down the road for me. You know, some old rancher had it. And my par- I was 14 years old, and my parents were like, uh-huh. Go ahead, buy whatever you want. <laughs> that thing's never going to run, <laughs> you know, but it did. And here I am. And I still have it. Like it's sitting in the shop. I'm getting ready to refresh it. After all these years, I'm getting ready to finally refresh it. You know, it's not going to be anything. I say not hardcore, but it's on 42 inch tall tires and I'm putting a doubler in it. But you know what I mean? Not hardcore, yeah. Like, yeah. like buggies. So, that's, but yeah. And then I, I started business. I mean, literally the rock crawling started out probably in eighth grade working for another shop, sweeping floors, you know, cleaning stuff up, getting yelled at, working on my own truck. He let me have a, 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 
you know, bay to work on my own truck in. There's a family friend that I was, I was working for that also had a land cruiser and four-wheeling buddies and that kind of stuff. So, and he later turned out to be uh, Don Robbins' father, you know, built Don Robbins' trucks, the first early cruisers. I was working in the shop for the Warren Rock Crawling Championships, like in 98. So, we got Don's truck ready, put the cage in, and before that, we actually were prepping Don's truck for uh, uh, 24 hours of the hammers. You remember that? Oh, yeah. Put on by ARB? Yep. That's... Uh... Right that's the king of the hammers, really, when you think about it. <laughs> oh, absolutely. That was the that's the original rock race, that's for sure. Running all the trails nonstop and we, you know, and we did. We actually spent quite a bit of time prepping Don's truck just for that event. Which if I remember right, they did well and I don't you know, it's been so long I have no idea. They didn't win. I remember that. <laughs> I'll have to try to nail down Don as well for an interview. That would be a great one. Yes. So if you were working at his shop then, and you were born in 77, so you were, you were by then about 20 years old, 18, 20 years yeah. old. And yeah, in my 20s, uh, Tracy Jordan, we built a cruiser for Tracy Jordan, Don Robbins, and the three of us would go out, and our favorite thing was to go cut trails. Well, Don would go cut trails, me and Tracy would go and follow along and help him out, and, you know, and that's, that's how we learned. I mean, I literally learned rock crawling from two two amazing crawlers, right? I mean, both those guys can, like, actually crawl better than most of them, right? Oh, and then my door was right It kind of has a little bit different style to drive you. So I came from those forces all meshed together. So when I left Dave's shop, when we were doing Don Robbins and Tracy's Cruisers and building really slow-speed, low-geared rock crawlers, I left and worked for Randy Ellis at Four Wheeler Supply, and started spotting for him. So I kind of got, you know, and, and, and that whole crowd was Shannon Campbell and Ian Liljeblad and, and, you know what I mean? It's a totally different crowd and a totally different philosophy for building stuff. Yeah, different to different styles of wheeling as well. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Randy, Randy's motto was peel out. When I was this spotter, my main job was to stay out of the way. Like, watch out. And the other part of your job was putting him back on his tires, you know, like, like that was it. You didn't have to spot. You just watch out. Help me get it back on his wheels. <laughs> yeah, Shannon comes from that school, too. He was always, you know, if it was a bump, it was a full throttle bump. You know, they're, yes. they're he's yeah. the king of the bump. Exactly. Yeah, I watched him drive up something that, that when I was spotting for Tracy, we had major problems getting up in four-wheel drive. And he had broken his front drive shaft, and I saw him climb the same obstacle in two-wheel drive, you know, that we could barely get up. <laughs> Let him eat. Only the back parents were touching the ground, but it was two-wheel drive. <laughs> <laughs> so you you talked about Randy Ellis and four-wheeler supply. So four-wheeler supply was originally owned or started by the guy that started Warren, wasn't it? Uh, they were partners. Partners. It was actually started in 46 and somewhere in the 50s. They partnered up with Warren, Thurston Warren, okay. and he was a 49% silent partner. The Corneliuses were the 51% owners. Okay. So, yeah, and that company is no longer with us, which that 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 actually brings a tear to my eye because I I did love that place. Original, yeah, they, they helped us. They helped us with a couple of the events that we did in Arizona as a as a sponsor and stuff. So I was it was sad to see them go as well. I for me. 
So yeah. give me some, uh, give me some background there. Um, you know, you guys were doing, like you said, it was a different, a different group of people from Don mm-hmm. and Tracy. Let's, go, a, let's go through Don and Tracy first. What were, and I'll get more out of them, but this will help me with their interviews as well. Cause Tracy's on my list as well. Um, to interview, but what 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 set them apart from everybody else that was wheel that were wheeling those hardcore trails in Arizona back then? Um, they were they were true crawlers, you know, like they they actually knew how to turn a tire as slow as you possibly could and creep up stuff, you know, and and, and a lot of it was Don style, right? He came from a time with Burfields, like Toyota FC forty Burfields. And 38 inch swampers, they don't get along. So he would he would literally know how to finesse it and not break stuff better than anyone. Tracy, on the other hand, had to learn that. You know, we got to the point we could change the Burfield in about 25 minutes because we had to do it every trail that we did. <laughs> Usually it was a signal for a lunch break. Ah, Tracy blew two front axles. Let's start up the grill. <laughs> So, and then, you know, Tracy's just a driven person. He's one of those people that, that once he decides to do it, he's going to do it better than anyone. And that's just proved it through the ages. You know, he took that style and he, he took it to the max of what you could do with that. Yeah, he did. Um, your style, let's talk about your style of crawling. When <laughs> in the early days of rock crawling, when was your first competition that you competed um, in? I guess it was in the 90s, probably 99. 99. Was it one so of the, I think, Was it ARCA? The first, yeah, it was ARCA, yep. Was it, it in? Been, it was probably 98 to start in 98. I started out as a spotter. I built Tracy's Land Cruiser, and I was a spotter. Uh, the guy I worked for at the time, Dave, he, Dave Gore, he uh, was Don Robbins' spotter, and we would kind of team up out there and help each other along. Um, then the next year... Right about then, I started working for Four Wheeler Supply. The next year, I spotted for uh, uh, Randy Ellis. And like I said, that was just eye-opening, you know, just a totally different style of driving. Um, kind of guy that took the cheapest vehicle in the entire group. We had a Suzuki Samurai at the time that he built just to, I think, make a mockery of people because he had maybe five grand into the whole thing. And we ended up in the top ten that year. You know, the two guys that didn't take it seriously, had the most fun. Like I can almost guarantee you that. <laughs> yeah. And we, you know, came to the end and it was his driving. It's a good driving style. It's just, it's different, you know, and that's, that's like Shannon's one of the guys that's perfected that driving style, you know, Shannon, Mike Palmer, those guys that could drive on the gas and do amazing things, you know, and that's where my style came from, I guess. I always tried to be the crawler, you know, I wanted to be like Don be able to crawl up stuff but my patience level wasn't quite there so usually if you saw me on the gas it just meant I was frustrated and the more frustrated I got the more on the gas I was so then then later on I learned to tame it you know the rock racing that's the rock crawling I was never going to be I was always a top 10 kind of guy it's really hard for me to get those top places whereas in the rock racing that's my style exactly you know we we were right there up in the championships every single every single year we did it so, yeah, and it's, it's more combining the speed. That's why Shannon's so good at it, combining the speed with the rock crawling. You still know how to read a line, you know, but you don't mind hitting the throttle to do it. 
Yeah, I'd almost call that that style more like what the the Southern boys or the Eastern boys, you know, because yeah. they they oh, had yeah, a lot some... of mud, so you needed wheel spin to get to get places. You can't crawl out of a mud hole. It's why Shuki made a lot of us Westerners look really silly. You know, he had come from back east, Jellico, and it was the same thing. It was like, I remember going to Jellico the first time, and he looks at me, and he's like, you see that rock right there? I'm like, yeah. He's like, you're gonna, you're not going to want to be on that rock. I'm like, what do you mean? Rocks are traction, you know? He's like, mm-hmm. We get up there, and my spotter's on that rock, and the first thing that happens is feet fly out from underneath him. He's on the ground, and it was like, oh, it's a whole different world back here. And learning to drive with finesse on the gas. You know, and Shoop had that down to a science. He just would make you look silly because he just had the right momentum with the right wheel speed at exactly the right time. It's all throttle control. Cool. You know, good car, good driver, but throttle control. Yeah, Chris Durham was another one of those that uh, that that could could make things, and it, you'd go. It almost how like the rock bouncers go nowadays, but he was actually working the car instead of just using the horsepower. You know, that's, yeah. that's, that's what I noticed about those guys back there. Um, primarily those two, you know, Shoop and, uh, and Durham. Yeah, Durham was like the back east Shannon Campbell, right? <laughs> you know, full throttle, could bounce up stuff, and you would see him lose his cool. And you knew when he lost his cool because he was hitting the rev limiter and red rocks were flying, you know. It's like. I got to spend a week this year with, or last year, I guess, with Durham, and that was fun. Just watching him drive again, it was like, man, that guy's, that guy's right foot, while everyone thinks it's just planted, it's the same thing. It's a lot of finesse. It's a lot of finesse. Did you go on the Ultimate Adventure then? Yeah, it's, I couldn't miss an Ultimate Adventure going to Alaska. That was too much fun. <laughs> Absolutely. I can imagine. Going from the rock crawling, you started the rock racing. Was that with the XRA? With, uh, yeah, uh, XRA. You got into the rock racing as well with Ultra Four or King of the Hammers. Yeah. Your experiences there were, if I remember right, were one of them was pretty hot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, burned my car to the ground. That was that car is running today. Don't ask me how, but someone's out driving it right now. <laughs> really? <laughs> it's heat treated. <laughs> I, I would have probably back halved it. Quite honestly, it, it was soft in the back section, which I didn't know that was. I did some testing on it myself, and I was like, I wouldn't. I would definitely back half it. The rear, the rear section where the fuel cell was, where the metal just got soft. Like you could take two pieces of tube, bang them together, and it would just put a moon-sized dent into the chassis. Wow! It's like, yeah, it was definitely interesting what happened to it. Like, Let's talk about that KOH and what happened and what led up to that. Did you guys ever figure out what it was that, that actually caused the, the fire to break out? Not, not really. I mean, at the end of the day, it was just completely burnt, so kind of hard to tell, you know what I mean? So what we suspect happened, we started, I don't know, 75th maybe, 70th. Our position was way back at the starting line, and by mile 21, we were in the top 10 physical position. I had basically hauled ass, like, you know, I knew I needed to get through the crowds, and that's basically what we did. You know, and we had enough fuel. We passed the first pit. We didn't even stop for the first pit because we knew we were doing so good on time that we're heading to the first rock trail. And I either cracked the transmission case 
or it was a tranny fluid leak, a huge tranny fluid leak. You know what I mean? I don't know if it was the lines. I don't know if it was a crack case, but I actually think at this point it was probably a crack case. So the last person we passed was uh, the Levels. I think it was Roger driving at the time. might have been Brad, but we passed him, and, you know, he's a friend of mine. So he, he said when we passed him, he smelled oil burning already. He's like, I smelled burnt oil. He's like, I didn't see any fire, didn't see any smoke. He's like, but as soon as you pass by, I could just smell it. So... Yeah, I have no idea. So how how engulfed was the car when you did realize that there was a problem? Or did the car, or did you what, realize what that? We were going so fast for so long that when the wind's blowing, you don't smell any of that because your windshield's open, you got parked the bumpers on, right? Right. We came to the first waterfall where I shifted into low range, and there was a buggy that was to the left of us that was burnt. It, it caught on fire and was sitting there burnt like you know they just put it out i look over at my co-driver and i'm like do you smell fire and he's like yeah but look and i'm like okay we made it another maybe 200 yards past that point and the car just shut off and i realized it shut off because it burned through the fuel lines just and by the time i got out the entire belly pan like i got out i realized it was on fire because my my co-pilot seat the co-driver dan he was the seat was on fire like the back of his seat was actually on fire and I drilled into his head that when he gets out of the car, don't just jump out of the car. You got to disconnect your parker pumper and your radios and be careful with everything. So I see the fire and I get out like a, like a wild animal. I'm just like, ah, ah, you know, rip everything off. I'm jumping out the window. I'm yelling at him. I look over and he's just all undoing stuff. And I'm like, you got to get out. I actually was in the drive on the passenger window, pulling the window nets off. And he finally goes, Hey, my seat's hot. I'm like, yeah, it's on fire. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> so he moved a little quicker after that, and we put the fire out, but the wind was blowing really strong. And, like, we put the fire out, and, you know, next people up was Levels. And he's like, hey, you need a fire extinguisher. I'm like, yeah, I used his. We got the fire out. He moved on. People were so far behind us that the wind would come back up, but it would kick the fire back up. You know, we're putting sand, everything we can in the belly, but we're right in the rocks where there's no sand anymore. You know, Shannon came over and peeled out on the buggy to get up enough sand to try and fill it, and we just fought it. Like, we fought the fire for, I don't know, an hour, hour and a half, and then it was finally, once 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 the seats caught and the full interior was, like, engulfed, it was pretty much done. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it is, but it's that's racing. Every once in a while, something like that happens. So, you, know? you and the navigator got out, you didn't. You didn't get burned. You didn't get get no, injured or anything. No. Okay. No, just a sad day. That's all. Yeah. So, did did you race ever again after that? Uh yeah. We were uh, racing with Bob Willis and the Dynamax buggy. That's right. We did that for a few years, and then, uh, well, then Four Wheelers, who was my you know employer and also my main sponsor, when they went under, I started my own business, and that's some. I started my own business and had had kids and somehow that managed to take away all my my fun buggy money <laughs> no more or disposable income no we've been we've been talking about it i'm getting the itch getting the itch pretty bad you know so i finally feel like i'm in a position again where i'm stable enough and business is stable enough and family stable enough that i'll we've been talking about it let's just say that in the shop so so are are you are you, do you have a weekend wheeler that you're you're wheeling right now Something that, uh, that you got on the trails. I've got a bunch of piles of junk. That's what it boils down to. 
I've got, you know, yeah, no serious crawlers at this moment. You know, we got stuff to do Moab and, and that kind of stuff, but nothing to do the buggy trails right now. So okay. that's what I mean. I'm at the point I'm, I'm itching for it again because rock crawling was always fun, but my, my, my favorite part about it was cutting new trails. Like I always like doing new trails, doing stuff no one's ever seen before. And Arizona is just right. We've got wash after wash. I mean, I walk bunches of them that I still know of. I haven't run yet. Found the entrance, found the exit, and just, you know, waiting. <laughs> for, for what? I don't know. I guess for me to build another buggy. <laughs> I know that there's a, there's a lot of guys that bust trails. Did you ever get a chance to meet Kevin Carroll? Uh, yeah. Okay. Kevin yeah, Carroll was, was one of the big trail busters. And that's what he was. He liked trail riding more than you ever liked the competing, right? I mean, the competing Correct. was fun, but he didn't build comp buggies. He built trail buggies. Yes. And that's, you know, that's, that's what it was. So and that's, that's where I'm back. You know, my last, my last KOH car, the one that burned down, that was never meant to be a race car. That from day one was a fun buggy, just a play buggy. Carried away a little bit with the racing and modified it back towards that direction, but it was never meant for that. Trail rider. Something you can be comfortable in all day long. Something you can do the hardest, you know, the most hardcore Arizona trails and be comfortable in it all day long. Let's find out if you've got any, any stories from back in the day breaking trails with, uh, say, Don or Tracy or somebody or anybody else or just by yourself into a spot where you thought you were way in over your heads, that you were wondering how the, the end of the day or the weekend was, gonna, was all going to pan out at some point. I think the three of us, Don, Tracy, and myself, didn't really know where that limit was supposed to be. We would just point our way up these washes that we didn't know there was exits or anything and just start going, you know. Anaconda, which is a popular trail here in Arizona, was one Don cut. You know, we, we, we finished a lot of the trails here, but Anaconda was his baby, right? And it took him about a month, and we'd just leave the cruiser out there. He'd get as far as he could go. And sometimes he'd roll over, sometimes he wouldn't, and we'd just pull the computer out of it and come back the next day or come back like one time a week later. You know, a little bit different out there right now. Your vehicle would be stripped down to nothing if you tried doing that today. You know, and walking batteries back in. He was just a lot of it. He was doing himself because we had to work. He would just be out there by himself cutting an impossible trail that, you know, people know today is a, still a hardcore four-plus rated trail. You know, That's who does that? Crazy. There's did, something wrong with this, I guess. <laughs> did you, do you remember the ARCA um, Ranch Pratt's event down in, in uh, Florence Junction, Apache Junction, Florence Junction, that, that first time? I think it was 90, 99. And then were you up, did you come up to Cedar City for uh-huh. that event? Yeah, I was spotting, that year I was spotting for Tracy. That was the year he burned his cruiser down after Phoenix. Like after the Phoenix event, it caught on fire. He was out trail riding and burned it down to the ground. And we literally built a new buggy, a new cruiser, in like the month we had before the next event. They go up to Cedar City, I think, was the next one. How about yeah, it was, how about at the Vernal event? Vernal? Yeah, we were at Vernal. I'm trying to think. What, what, what are you asking? You seem like you're pointing me in a direction here. No, I'm just I'm just trying to get a just trying to get a sense of of where you were at and you know. Oh, let's, we did. Cedar City, we did Vernal, we did Phoenix, which the Phoenix events were fun, you know, home home crowd or whatever. What, Las Cruces? Like, they don't do events like that in Las Cruces anymore, right? Both Ranch and I, at the same time, quit doing trail-type, I guess you would say, 
courses um, yeah. where you sit up in a trail and then the first obstacle was in the trail. The second one was in the trail and you'd work your way up the trail. Those were yeah. always really difficult for spectators and the teams and made Just really little cool days. The, the only one that I can ever remember that I did that way was the one down there in Florence Junction as well on Lower Woodpecker. But you're not allowed to drive down in Lower Woodpecker anymore. Because of probably because of all the petroglyphs and everything, and the, the, the BLM manager for that area hates four wheelers like just with a passion. So yeah, it's it's like that's isn't that crazy? We had a competition there, and literally it's shut off right now from any driving at all. So that's how much has kind of changed as far as that area's land use, you know, in, in this amount of time. So yeah, talking- I mean, Francisco back in the day was the one that we dealt with as, as a BLM manager of that area. And he was a pain in the ass. Um, I know ranch had all sorts of problems, had all sorts of obstacles to jump over as well as I did just to put the events on there. I, and now they've got it shut down. That's amazing. Yeah. That's it's like it's just areas that are, you know, they shut down Martinez Canyon, which was beautiful. You know, one of those places that, there, there's just no reason for it, you know. There really is is no reason besides they just want to limit access, make it easier on them, you know. It's I honestly couldn't tell you why why they think that needs to happen, but but he does. It's it's the fight we're going to have continuing on, right? It's just going to keep closing down more and more and more. Yeah, that's one of the reasons that it, it's good to see what they've done on the East Coast with everything there is private property. Any place you're going to wheel is private yep. property. The parks there. Same thing here in Texas, where I'm at right now. Everything is parks, and you got to pay to play. But I, I have a feeling that eventually, and I hope it's not too soon, but eventually we're going to see a lot more of that in the West as BLM tries to shut more and more off, or the states do. It really is a shame because the areas that we're using, you know, they wash out and change. We're the land of flash floods, you know. I've literally done plenty of trails and cut trails and you, you come back a year later and you either can't tell you've been there or it's just changed completely. You know, the sand's here, the rocks have moved. It's like, there's nothing we're doing that's permanent at all. It's literally just making your way through a wash. that's going to have destructive forces coming through over the next monsoon. That's just the yeah. way it is. You know, a lot more destructive than we, than what people think we are. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And then the strange things, right? Like, We've like created Anaconda and made those things, and they've been there long enough. And now it's a marked BLM road. You know, it's a marked trail, and they've marked the access, and we made it. You know, it was not a mining road that got reused, but you know, they come in and recognize that there should be some opportunities for recreation, right? The fact that they took something that we did and put it on their map, it says something to me, right? Yeah, that's that's oh, that's that's better than them taking the stuff away. That's for sure. So yeah. maybe there, maybe we can find a middle ground where where they'll allow us to to have areas. I mean, we see that in Moab. You know, they 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 keep trying to close things down or or narrow us down, like in the Rubicon right now. You know, you used to be able to drive off, you know, fifty feet or sixty feet to you know a hundred feet to have a camp a campsite, and now you can't be more than you know. You got to stay on what they call the trail and even park there and then go disperse camp by, you know, carrying your tent, carrying your ice chest, carrying everything to where you want it camp. And I, you just wonder how the logic of that is, right? I mean, how does driving on an expanse of granite hurt it? Like, that's what I can't figure out, right? I mean, right. It's 
right? There's, I, I get packing your trash in, packing your poop out, all that makes sense, but not being able to drive on solid rock <laughs> that a glacier formed, I don't think I don't think we can do more damage than a you know damage than a glacier can do. So yeah, they they talk about runoff, you know the the amount of oils or you know fluids that that a vehicle will lose or leave on the trail, and then after raining, you know we get runoff, and those end up into the the ecosystem, you know, and in, in the lakes and everything and eventually into the the big rivers and then into the ocean and I, mm-hmm. and it's like really what happens when we drive on highways you know the vehicles that are going up on the trail there's a lot lot less impact they're they're typically better maintained than 90% of the vehicles on the road even over new cars yet where does all that drainage go yeah you know, how can they say what we do is an impact considering what everybody else does. And it's where education helps, right? I mean, these days people are carrying like spill kits and making an effort not to, not to leave those messes, you know? It's just part of being responsible, right? It's like, yeah. even in the buggy days, it's, it's, you know, I'd have, on the hardcore rock crawling trails and a hardcore buggy, what we'd do is we'd run everything to a catch can. So you roll over and sit there for two hours, it doesn't leak a drop. It's just sitting there. That's, that came from competitions, right? That was like one of the great things that, that came down from competitions was containing all that fluid. To me, it was just like, oh, that's great. You don't make a mess. I don't lose my oil on the ground. I can spend however long I need to to tip it back over. <laughs> Common occurrence. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're pushing the limits, yes, that's going to happen. Hardcore Arizona wheeling is going to lend you to, to being upside down once in a while. So let's talk Let's talk at events or wheeling, you know, the – do you have any fond memories or any disastrous memories that can be shared? Things that happen that, you know, were like, wow, we got, you know, like breaking Anaconda. Um, you know, I'm sure that you guys, when you guys got out the end of that, you know, it was like, yes, we've done it. Did you guys go out just for the day or did you go out with the intent that you were spending the night out there as well? Well, in Arizona, a lot of the wheeling in the summertime is at night. If you want to go out, it's going to be a night run. So we're kind of famous for the night runs that you start in the afternoon and come home, you know, five or six o'clock in the morning the next day, just get some sleep out there and can't be out in the heat. So there's a lot of night wheeling like that, you know, a lot of weekend trips with the intent of just cutting new trails. So yeah, it was, it was, it was a good time, you know, the, the camaraderie from like the old rock crawling days, that's, that was just on a whole new level, right? Like when you get 75 like-minded teams together that all have the same common interests and usually pretty same idea of a good time and fun, you end up with a pretty good sized party going on every night. You had some teams send out their moles like, like Donnie Campbell that would go out there and party with everyone all night long. But I kind of think it was just to get an advantage on the competitors the next day too. Because <laughs> he could out drink anybody. <laughs> I mean, you can't turn them down either, you know. So <laughs> I can't tell you how many times he poisoned me, whether it was at Moab or somewhere. Yeah. Years off your life. <laughs> Years. <laughs> Do I have all this gray hair? Yeah, no. Were you at Vernal? I'm pretty sure you were there because I that's the one of the last places I remember seeing Randy 
But we, uh, everybody was hanging out with Shannon and a bunch of people were getting ready to head to Moab. We were doing that. There was a uh, pre-party or the during the weekend parties all down at that little bar nightclub that had the dancing and everything. And they had, UROC had these signs up that said, no alcohol on premises or, you know, during the event or whatever. That sign on the way in disappeared there at Vernal. Everybody was hanging around the Shannon and Mitch Guthrie. And I'm sure Randy was, was in there in that group. And there was, oh, there had to be 30 or 40 guys all standing there. Mark Patey walked up and said, you guys can't be drinking. I don't remember if it was Mitch or, or if it was Shannon said, well, why not? It's after the event. And he was like, well, there's signs posted. And somebody goes, what sign? There's no sign. And he goes, yeah, there's a sign down on the road coming in. And somebody was like, no, there's not. He went down to go look for the sign and he came back and he goes, okay, you're right. There's no sign, but you're not supposed to be drinking. He got all upset and he left. About a month after that event, we were sitting in my shop. I look over and I go, what's that? And there was something behind a piece of plywood. So I went over and pulled the plywood over and it was that sign. So the story I got from Little Rich <laughs> was that he and DSI, Dave Schneider, pulled uh-huh. that sign out on like Saturday night when they were coming back from the bar uh-huh. and they stashed it in our trailer. And then he took it out of the trailer and stashed it in the shop so that uh, whenever anybody was asking, you know, where was it at, that we didn't have it. But I was like, really? <laughs> I don't think yeah. I still have that sign, but trying to trying to help you out any way you could, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it wasn't even my event. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think Little Rich was spotting for for DSI that time when he had that S and N buggy. So those were good times. Just the whole, like I said, it's wasn't quite like that at KOH anymore. You know, there's a lot more. It's a lot more intense. You know, that, that general feeling that everyone's your friend there is, I don't think it's quite there anymore, you know? So, just a different, different time. You know, it's just the whole, anytime you have the grassroots beginnings of something like that, it's always going to be that sweet spot, you know, where most everyone's getting along, you know? Yeah. I said, you found that niche. You're a promoter that most people generally like, which that's hard to do, right? <laughs> They they like me a lot better away from the events than during the events. Well, that's that's part of being the promoter. And I think they like me a lot better now that Shelly has come into my life. Those years before Shelly, we call my BS years. And you can take that different ways. I use it as before Shelly. But, you know, some people say it was, you know, my BS years is in my bullshit years. But, yeah, we uh, it, it's nice to have to be able to still say I have a lot of friends in the industry that even though I don't get to see them very often when I do, it's, it's like old times around the campfire. So I, I feel the same way. Like I said, been in a week with Chris Durham. It felt like we we're right back there. You know, we just kind of knew what to expect. And you know, when, when we're standing there waist deep in mud, winching everybody back and forth, we don't really need to talk that much. We both, you know, know what the other one's thinking and know what we need to do and how to, how to get this shit, you know, the shit show moving again. So, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's like you said, I run it and it's just like old days and good times. So let's talk a little bit about 
about your life now um, away from the wheeling. You know, the, you, you said you have kids. Um, how old are your kids now? Uh, let's see. I got a 12-year-old and a 10-year-old. Awesome. So they're, they're sixth and fifth grade. So it's a, starting to be a trying time. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't get easier. <laughs> it never gets easier. Even when they're 18 and they've gone on to college or started their own lives, they're still, they're still there. You're always worried yeah. about them, whether they're how old they are. No, I bet I, I'm friends with uh, friends with Rich on Facebook and everything. But how's uh, how's Megan doing? Megan, Megan's right? actually doing very well. She's married, um, has a couple of kids, living up in Idaho, and they're doing they're doing very well. It's it's good to see that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and just just talking about the old times. Like one of my favorite memories is after the events, like. Usually I'd eat dinner with you and the judges and just that kind of stuff, you know, and that's, I had a lot of respect for all the judges, you know, I realized it was probably not the most fun thing being the judge out there a lot of times, you know, but I was just, just thinking about the other day. It's like, that's, that was one of my favorite parts, you know, just that, that part of it all after the event was over. Yeah. Unfortunately, the judges, even nowadays, but not, not near as much took a lot of grief and it didn't matter if it was the judges at We Rock or Cal Rocks or ARCA or, you know, whoever's events, um, whether they were Bob Hazel Pro Rock events or U Rock, even the East Coast. You know, you could be best friends with somebody on course that's driving on course, a driver. But as soon as you had to make that call against them, it, there's always those arguments, you know, whether they knew they were, you know, whoever was wrong. You know, it just, yeah. it would just escalate. I personally felt wrong more than once. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice you know, to be laughing about it now. <laughs> that's, that's just part of it. You know, I always try to keep a level head about it. You'd lose your temper once in a while, but at the end of the day, they're there putting the event on for you, you know, and most of them were coming out as volunteers and it was, it was a lot of work on their part. I, I realized it, you know, and that's why I would try to separate it and, you know, buy them dinner or something after, after the deal, you know, Just, I get it. You're there to help. <laughs> it yeah. doesn't feel like yeah. it on the courts. Yep. I know that some of our old judges um, have gone on to be competitors or trail uh, wheelers, that kind of thing. And uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting. I'm going to have to get some of those judges on to, talk about the old times, but not throw anybody under the bus. Just say, well, driver A was a real jackass, you know? Yeah, <laughs> and then driver A, if he ever hears the podcast, will go, shit, they're talking about me. <laughs> exactly. Because the judges were always wrong. I know that. <laughs> you know, that's most certainly true. <laughs> <laughs> I can remember, right? I remember one time, um, I hate to throw him under the bus, but Jason Jordan was spotting for Justin Kyleman. It was a We Rock Grand Nationals, and we were up in Cortez, and they mm -hmm. were on a they were in a rock section where they just he he was bellying out and he couldn't get through the cones, and finally he got through the cones, but he only got two tires through. And we told him, and it was in the shootout. I told him, I said, "No, you only got two tires through." They ended up timing out, backing off. And Jason's down the hill and he yells at me. 
you're always effing me over. You never, you, it's, you're always against me or something like that. And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. You know, I mean, it's, there's nobody that, that I can ever say that I did not want to win. I want everybody to win, but it's all got to be within the framework of the rules. You know, I know that there's, yep. there's drivers out there that when Little Rich was marshalling the events, that there's one in particular that I know that just does not want to ever talk to Little Rich again, won't go up to his events, you know, just at the drop of a hat, talk shit on him about one call. Yeah. Because he felt it, it made him lose a sponsorship or the sponsorship go to somebody else. And I tried to remind that guy that during that event, he had actually rolled out of bounds, got back on course. So should have been DQ'd on that course, but he still made the shootout because he didn't get DQ'd on that course. Yes. And he goes, well, it doesn't matter. I made the shootout. And then I got a bad call. I was like, but you got a great call before the shootout. It's, so be happy that you even made the shootout. But it's just part of judging. There is a judgment in there. So that's always going to be open to the dispute, right? Yeah. That's just the way it goes. And it's, you know, a lot of these guys take it really personally, you know, and it's, and that's, that's what you try and respect in the judges and the, and the staff that was running it was the fact that just play by the rules. You know, you might not always like the rules, but as long as you try to enforce them across the whole board of competitors and it's there. You know, I've had judgments I didn't, you know, that literally lost me a championship. And it was the way the rule was written, you know, and everyone that everyone that was there and most of the drivers I competed against agreed that I should should have won, you know, shoulda, coulda, but it was not by the rules, right? So Well we had do. in Baghdad, Arizona this year, had one of the teams was convinced they did not hit a cone. They ended up pointing out on that obstacle and they said, you know, we have video that shows that we didn't hit that cone. And I told them, I said, I, I can't look at your video because it's always the judge's call because the judge may have made that same call on somebody else that doesn't have video. So if that judge is walking the course the same way and he saw you hit the cone, that means he's probably seen somebody else hit the cone. It's, you know, it's just, you know, it's got to be a level level playing field. And they were upset. They came, and they other drivers came up to me, other teams, and said, "Hey, you know, they didn't hit the cone." And my judge, who doesn't know any of these players or people, yeah, Wheeler, but he doesn't he doesn't know who these people are. Tells me, Rich, I am I am absolutely I know for a fact that the guy hit the cone. They hit the cone. And I said, okay, that's all I need to know is if you can, you know, you absolutely can say you hit it. Well, they went, that was on a Saturday. They got back to their camp Saturday night and they looked at that film because they had somebody filming it for them and they expanded it so that they could see really close. And he comes back, he comes to me on Sunday morning and he goes, he goes, I've already apologized to the judge and I want to apologize to you as well. I hit the cone. That's because we looked at the video, we had to expand it, but then yeah. we saw that we did actually hit the cone. And even though there was like, you know, everybody that was down off the course thought for sure they missed it, but 
they actually, you know, came back and apologized. So most of the time, that's, I always go with the judge if the judge is in the right position. That's that's what you got to do. That's why you have a judge. You know, nobody likes it, and there's always going to be arguments. But he's, you got to have a rule somewhere, right? It can't be a popular popular vote on what you did. Exactly. Of course, it doesn't work. Because then there's some people that would always hit cones. Because <laughs> <laughs> some of the best drivers were guys that were not liked. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, every time, every time we got a call that went our way, that you know, I mean, it's. Part of the spotter's duty was to obstruct the judge's vision. You know, if you had a really questionable cone that you knew you were going to get by, I mean, the smart spotters did. You'd stand there and you'd, you'd block the judge from being able to see what actually happened. You would, you would hit the cone and you would go, oh, you cleared it, you know, good job, you, you made it, good. You know, even though you knew, you just ran over the corner of that thing. That was part of the spotter's job, you know. It's all the game you're playing, the good teams, you know, very few people were Boy Scouts out there. You know, if you got a call that went your way, you didn't, you didn't go correct it. Like, no, I, I hit that cone. It's, you know, you argue the point. That's, that's just part of being a competitor. You know, some people would argue to the point that they were being maybe crybabies or you could tell they took it like personally inside that you were calling against them. But most of us are competitors, you know, that's, right. It's, I wouldn't call it cheating, but we're not going <laughs> to, yeah, we're going to try to influence things to go our way, right? For our team. You exactly. know? So, uh, tell me about, tell me about your shop. What, what kind of work are you doing and what do you like specializing in? We joke about it, but we basically specialize in doing, if it makes sense, we're not doing it. Right. If there's any project that everyone's like, Oh Yeah. That's totally logical. Let's go that, you know, that's not what we're doing. You know, right now we're putting a, you know, 900 foot pound of torque Viper V10 into a short bed 2006 power wagon, right? Why? I don't know. They don't make short bed power wagons. The customer wanted one. Why a V10 out of a Viper? I, you know, he wants big power. He loves his motors. It's like, okay, you know, it's a lot of uh, resto mods, a lot of, it's, it's kind of where it's gone. You know, I do a lot of, these days, most people want to build their own buggy. I wouldn't say most people, but but the average rock crawler is, is involved with it. You know, you can buy parts from, you know, in 2000, you couldn't buy all the parts you needed to build a buggy, right? right. You had to have some expertise to build this or that. These days, you can literally order pretty much every single part, cab, bracket set, whatever you need to put these things together. You know, and that's it's great. But at the same time, it's one of those things where that's not really my, my big market anymore. You know, in the early 2000s, I was building a lot of tube chassis, a lot of rock crawlers, stuff more geared for the competition. I'm not saying that it's, it's not out there. You know, it's, it's still out there. But my niche has kind of moved over to doing high-end, you know, free runners. Everything is built for performance. You know, we're working on a, a Scout 2 right now, but it's got a Dana 80, you know, Dynatrack Dana 80 in the back. It's going to have internal bypass king shocks two and a half we're going to go get the thing tuned it's going to have 40 inch tall tires and it's going to be finished out so you can drive it across the country ac interior you know the last pre-runner last pre-runner we did it's you know 19 inches of travel front and rear but we probably have it's going to have about 300 pounds of sound deadening and and interior and a you know stereo for an audio file and abs so we can take it to breckenridge and it's just a full package. It's kind of a, a lot of the stuff we're doing now is a combination of 
like a really hardcore overlander is the way to describe it, right? Like, like, a, like not just a chase truck for Baja, but something that you could get in and enjoy driving, you know, thousand miles of dirt road and packing all the camping gear in and the fridge freezer and the, you know, the rooftop tents and, and that kind of stuff, stuff that people are really getting out and using, but to the, to that high, high end of that spectrum. Nice. That's awesome. Like I said, it's one of the things most people don't think it makes sense to put a Dana 80 in a, you know, ultimate duty 60 front, but this guy knows it's not going to break, you know, twin turbo Cummins in front of it, Indy 4500, Atlas, all the stuff that we kind of developed rock crawling, right? Pro rock, pro rock housings, for instance, all that stuff that we developed rock crawling back in the 2000s, it's now filtering on to just the normal vehicles, you know, it's going to be... It, it, something you can drive on the street, take to dinner, take out to the movies, but could also go do four plus trails in Moab with the AC on and the stereo blasting. Like, yeah, that's awesome. That's that's one of the things that I love about the early days of rock crawling. And you can say the same thing for off for off road racing is taking the technology that that was created to outperform others now is available for the for the average guy that wants to build a rig like that, whether it's a, a full off custom resto rod or, you know, a taking a, a JK or a JL and making it so that it'll hit the whoops, but yet do rock crawling trails as well. It's, it's, it's really it's amazing where the industry is gone. You know, and that's, that was like the, the, like we talked about the early days of four wheelers and Shannon and all those guys, Randy, they were all, they like to rock crawl, but we all hauled ass back and forth through the trail. I mean, it was it was a full-on desert race to get to the rock crawling trail and a desert race back to the trailers, you know, and it was a lot of that going on, you know. We all thought we were, we all thought we were Ivan Stewart, you know, in our rock crawlers, and <laughs> KOH was born, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so is there anything that we've uh... – that we've missed that you might want to talk about, about the old days or the history as you saw it coming about? I don't know. I mean, I think we kind of covered it. I, the camaraderie and the, and the people are really what made those days what they were, right? I mean, how many times, what, Supercrawl had a hundred over a hundred competitors, right? Yep. You're going through Farmington and the crowds, you're, you're just wading your way through the crowds. It's like those days, it was just like that moment, you know, where it was new and exciting and, and uh, I mean, how do you feel? How do you feel about the rock crawling progressing on? I'm I'm loving the resurgence. We finally, up until this whole COVID thing, we've been seeing the sport, at least yeah. on the West Coast, grow for the last four or five years. And, you know, before the housing recession of 2008, 2009, you know, lasted through 2011, you know, the economy really took a hard time to come back around and over the last three and a half four years we've really seen a resurgence of people with disposable income that are getting back in to the rock crawling on the competitive side we had 52 cars in baghdad arizona for our event there in march which that's a number that was that was the biggest one we'd seen since truly since the recession um that's you know, a big, that's actually more than I realized. I guess I need to get back out to a rock crawling event once in a while, huh? There you go. Yeah, <laughs> we're, uh, we're going to be in Cedar City 
here in July, and I, second weekend in July, and I'm really looking forward the weekend after the 4th of July, and I'm really yeah. looking forward to that event. Um, it's a, everybody, everybody likes cedar. Mm-hmm. It's uh, a little harder for us to get spectators interested in coming there because you got to grab them from so far away. But yeah. it, uh, as far as the rock formations and being able to pick some really cool lines and everything, it's... Your city was always awesome. Yes. Yeah, because it's so much big slab. There wasn't a whole lot of loose stuff, so it was, you know... Yeah. It, it didn't, yeah, so forces like didn't change. Yeah, no, it seems it seems good. I really like seeing the, the new stuff coming out of the rock crawling. You know what I mean? Like the portal axles and the Jesse Haynes rides. Yeah, he's just, he's really pushed... He's really pushed the envelope, and a lot of that, they finally, everybody finally convinced me, and I saw the writing on the wall that we were going to have to drop the rear steer penalty. The what? <laughs> the what? <laughs> we dropped the rear steer penalty. <laughs> uh-huh. How many years, how many years did we say that? It's an advantage, but it ain't an advantage. For, forever, but it is, it is a... It is a big advantage. Um, Nobody, I mean, BZ and George just came out and they were running until they broke. And he was, they were really having to struggle to keep up with the guys that could just use rear steer. And BZ and George were pretty damn good in that scrapper chassis to be able to muscle it around and, and do what they needed to do to keep to to be able to be on the podium with the rear steer cars with a penalty. Now that there's no penalty, he was like, there's no way I can keep up with these cars. Yeah. I, I went out with BZ when he first first got the scrapper, right? We went out to a little trail and I brought this the single seat buggy with the rear steer. And there was this one, you know, all day the thing's amazing. Everyone knows that, right? Can climb Climb awesome, all that. But there's this one big crack with like a double whammy. And uh, with the rear steer car, I could go right up it. I mean, it was no problem, but I had, you know, rear steer the whole way and doing this and that. We sat there for maybe 45 minutes of him hammering on that car trying to get up it. And I couldn't, I couldn't get it up without using the rear steer. You know, it's just one of those obstacles. It was just made for, for rear steer. Right. That's why in the old days, I never understood why we had unlimited crawling, but then you're going to penalize me for... For the rear steer, you know, anyone could have had it. Yeah, but anyone. what I what what I told what I told Tracy because Tracy was the biggest, you know, <laughs> the biggest one about you know saying get rid of it was you can build an unlimited car, but my rules have to be so that everybody is on a level playing field. You know, yes, mm-hmm. I know that people could add could add rear steer, but I knew that what a lot of people were going to do is it is that they were just going to say, you know what, you're going to give give us, you know, make rear steer, I'm just going to quit. And mm-hmm. that had already happened because of the economy, and we were really struggling to get it back. People were running Pro Mod, people were running Sportsman, but nobody was really running Unlimited. And I said, okay, now's the time, you know, there's nobody left to say, you know, I'm not coming <laughs> back out if you don't do it, you know, if you do it. So I just went ahead and did it. And then that next season, you know, all of a sudden I had 10 unlimited cars and only one with a drag axle. And all of a sudden there was nine rear steers. 
but they were also more trail rig. Some of them were just more trail riggish yeah. than actual comp buggies. And then all of a sudden it just, you know, it went to guys building just comp buggies. With rear steer. So it was time. If you want a hardcore trail machine, it's the way to go, right? There's a way to go back then. It's the way to go now. And it's, have you ever driven one? Have you driven a rear steer car? Do you remember Dave Knight? He I was, do remember. I tried to remember his name the other day. <laughs> um, Dave Knight had this. He was one of my first sponsors. In fact, he was the first sponsor. He did my first event, put up or shut up in Lake Amador, and he brought. He's the one that brought Chris Durham, Ted and Renee Barron, and some of the other people. He made sure that they came to that event. He had that vehicle they called Big Red, or he called Big Red, and it was a rear steer buggy with. You know, and it was the aluminum body, and it was all painted in red and everything. I He gave that bu- buggy for me to use at one of the events somewhere, and I tried to back it off the trailer. And <laughs> as I'm backing off the trailer, I hit the rear steer. I didn't have my harnesses on. Did all the things that I profess, uh, that I tell people you have to do nowadays. You get in that buggy, put your harness on. doesn't matter if you're in your driveway. You're going to load the buggy. You're unloading the buggy. Put your harness on. Well, I started to drive off the trailer looking over my shoulder and I hit the rear steer and almost flopped it coming off the trailer. That, that vehicle did not like to stay on all fours anyway because nobody understood link geometry and any of that. And that thing, that thing just liked to just sit there and, it, I mean, on flat ground, you could turn it just wrong and hit the gas and the thing would just flop over. And I almost flopped it off the trailer and that's when I said, you know what? Little Rich, you can back it off the trailer. Rogi, you can do it. Whoever, I am not touching that rig ever again. <laughs> it's hard to drive. Everyone thinks it's just going to save, like, solve all your problems. But it's it's it take, it's so hard to drive and learn how to drive it. The first year you get it, you usually roll over a lot because you, you turn it the wrong way when you're on a, you know, I mean, on a waterfall. It's it's just not that easy to, to, to learn how to use effectively. So the guys like Tracy and Don that used it masterfully, it was like, it's they're making it look easy, but it's not that easy. Yep. I let I let uh, Craig Craig Stump, right? He was, a, you know, did some rock crawling events here and there. We were out on a trail ride one day doing uh, upper proving grounds in Moab. Yep. And I was like, "Do you want to drive? You can drive the buggy." And he drove my buggy that day, and he got out, and he was just like, "I thought you had a huge advantage." I'm like, "It's not a huge advantage." I said, "It's an advantage. It's just not like you think it is." It's not huge. It's still driving. You still, you know, he's like, I couldn't see anything. I'm like, I know that's usually a single seat car. You, you've either got, you've usually got less visibility, not more, you know? And True. yeah, he, he came away with a whole different attitude towards rear steer after that. And I'm like, uh-huh. <laughs> Go drive one. It's not easy. <laughs> well, um, I'm going to let you get back to work. I want to say thank sure. you for, for coming on with the, with us here and, and sharing your history and letting people know who you are. You're in, you're still in Phoenix or in Arizona area. Where's your shop located? Your Arizona. We're a suburb of Phoenix, Phoenix, Arizona. And the name of your business is? It's Rob Bonnie Fabrication. Rob Bonnie Fabrication. So anybody in that Phoenix area or anybody in the country that's looking for some real custom work to be done, you know, yeah. Give Rob a call and uh, let him bid your job. Uh, you're get, you're not going to be disappointed in the work that he does. 
I guess three really good guys working for me too, which is which is hard to find in the fabrication world. You know, one of the guys has been uh, part of the Arizona Creepy Crawlers and Rough Riders since he was a teenager. His dad got him into the sport. You know, and the other one worked for Randy Ellis for, gosh, I guess 10 years, something like that. And it's just, like I said, we're at the, we're at the point now where it's almost unlimited capabilities and I've got good guys and the work is flowing. It's like, um, the, the guys I got working for me, that's the hardest part of this business is finding good fabricators that can actually fabricate. I know that sounds silly, but it's, it's not something they talk about. It's not their passion. It's not something they're dreaming about. They've actually gone out and built things. Um, you know, one of them is a longtime Jeeper, been into Jeeping. His dad was in the, you know, founding members of the Jeep clubs here in Phoenix. So we just, it's literally a shop the breeze, the off-road. You know, that's, that's all we do and all we focus on. We'll work on, you know, we work on cars here and there, but it's got to be a pretty, pretty extreme car before we're working on it. So oh, Awesome. Well, thank you, Rob. Let's, uh, let's try to hook up. I'm going to, I plan on being in Phoenix again here this year, and I'm going to look you up when I get back into town so we can, uh, maybe tip a cold one or sit around and do some bench racing. That'd be great. Come down to the shop and uh, check everything out. We usually got way too many projects going on. So <laughs> excellent. We'll do a shop visit with the magazine. There that would go. actually be awesome. I actually just got a subscription to the magazine. I don't know if you saw my name on the list, but very, very nice job. I was impressed when I actually got it in the mail. So, well, good. I'm glad, I'm glad that you enjoy it. It's uh, it's my retirement program. I'm mm-hmm. not going to be able to, you know, I've been doing this 20 years now yep. and I, I just turned 62. So you can do the math. I'm not going to be doing this another 20 years. So yep. the magazine and uh, the podcasts are kind of the, you know, fulfill the circle, keep yeah. everybody involved. And, and, you know, so I can stay involved in the, in the business when I just decide to, you know, I've had too much of the physical activity and want to cut back on that. So. But that's yeah. not going to happen real soon. Well, honestly, I was, it's, it's totally great to hear from you. You know, it's kind of awkward to do it this way, but can't wait to see you again, Rich. All right. Rob, thank you. If you enjoy these podcasts, please give us a rating. Share some feedback with us via Facebook or Instagram and share our link among your friends who might be like-minded. Well, that brings this episode to an end. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll catch you next week with Conversations with Big Rich. Thank you very much.